Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a brand new middle grade novel. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we ask, how does one author's remarkable life story show up in her books? It deeply pains me to say that we almost didn't pursue this episode. Our guest, Paula McLean, is a mind-bogglingly successful author, but her most recent book, the one that she's in the midst of promoting, is a thriller, and we had recently put together an episode on a different thriller called The Push. We'd like to mix things up, so we thought maybe we shouldn't do this, but Paula's assistant is a very valued Book Dreams listener. Hi, Kat. Hi, Kat. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. And when I told her about our reservations, she said basically, no, you don't understand. You have to talk to Paula about the connection between this thriller, When the Stars Go Dark, and her childhood. And was she ever right? I loved this conversation. Oh, I did too. So let's tell you a little bit about Paula McLean. She's the author of The Paris Wife, a New York Times and international bestseller, which has been published in 34 languages. She's also the author of two collections of poetry, the memoir Like Family, Growing Up in Other People's Houses, and a first novel, A Ticket to Ride. Her new novel, When the Stars Go Dark, is a New York Times bestseller, a Good Morning America buzz pick, and a People Magazine book of the week. This is Paula's first foray into suspense, and it is riveting. She draws from true crime, and as we said, she also draws from her own life experiences. After being abandoned by both parents, Paula and her two sisters became wards of the California court system. They moved in and out of various foster homes for the next 14 years. And we talked a lot about Paula's life during those years and how she wove elements of that time and her biological and foster family members into her story. Paula has said that this thriller is the most personal of her many books, including her memoir. We asked her what she meant by that, and here's what she said. It was completely accidental. And I think if I knew when I launched into this entirely new genre that I would also be exposing myself and deep parts of my story, I probably would have run screaming in the other direction. But, you know, the subconscious sometimes I think has its own agenda. And I think my subconscious must have known that there was some rich territory to mine in this story and in my character. So my memoir, Like Family, was published in 2003 by Little Brown. And it really just is about my experiences in foster care. I spent 14 years in the foster care system from the time I was four until I aged out of the system and always with my two sisters. And although my memoir definitely does confront and engage with those experiences, at the time I wrote it, I was just doing a graduate program in poetry. And I think that the language became my tool for handling material that was actually too hot for me to handle. I would also tell you, Julie, that at the time I wrote Like Family, I had never had any therapy. <laughs> 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 that 
That's fascinating. It wow. is fascinating, but I wouldn't advise writing a memoir about traumatic childhood experiences without having had some therapy on board. So that book, of course, is incredibly personal, but it's not, there's no older, wiser point of view to knit in the emotional, um, what do I want to say, resolution Mm. and to really engage with how those traumatic experiences then leave a kind of residue that needs to be worked through in the course of a lifetime. You don't simply... You know, there's that phrase like, let it go, right? To me, there is no letting it go. There's letting it in. And the more you let it in, as I've done with this book, it seems to me the easier it is to actually handle and engage with and confront. And that's what I mean by this book is more personal, meaning I go to a deeper place, even though I'm doing so by visiting fictional characters. That's so interesting. I read the memoir and and quite liked it. Thank but you. I didn't notice, but you're right. There's you're right about your book. There's mm, no book. yes, yeah. I mean, I was in scene. Thank you very much. But and I'm proud of that book. I would never dismiss it. And it's a huge part of my. It's in my DNA, right? In my literary coming of age, for sure. But the scene, for instance, and and perhaps we should say that there might be a trigger warning here. There's a scene in the book where sexual abuse is happening to me, to me as a child. And it's almost as if even as I was writing those scenes, I was dissociating. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. That I couldn't actually really touch any of that. And so I was using language, beautiful language, to kind of float above it. And to say what it felt like as a child to almost be dreaming those moments instead of as an adult realizing how much they've become part of my life and that it's my journey really to make sense of them and to move beyond them, to transcend them. And that's what I have Anna Hart, my detective character, in When the Stars Go Dark, understanding about the victims she obsesses over because she can see how trauma knits into the nervous system, that it leads us down certain paths we're not aware of, makes certain decisions right for us, and almost hijacks your life if you're not aware of it. And so the awareness is absolutely the profound thing which Anna realizes. And it's one of the reasons why I love her as a character, that she gets to have these experience and this knowledge base and is very grounded inside what it means to be a victim and what it means to stop being a victim. Mm-hmm. I feel the presence of Anna's siblings on every page of When the Stars Go Dark, although they're actually rarely mentioned. Did you intend for her relationship with them to feel so meaningful? And how does it connect to your relationship with your siblings? That was a very late addition to the book, Anna's relationship with her siblings. I, In early drafts, I kind of had her backstory hidden. So there's the freight of it. 
it's almost like um, Hemingway's iceberg principle, right? So mm-hmm. an eighth of the real guts of the story is on the surface and everything else is below. My editor really wanted more. And I was afraid to write the scenes with Anna's siblings because I was afraid of overdoing it or writing melodramatically because I feel about my siblings almost operatic, almost <laughs> like Baroque in my <laughs> love and my devotion and my attachment. I believe we went to a war together and we, you know, they're my, I would take a bullet for them. Like they are my people. And so Anna's relationship with her siblings even though nothing that happens in those scenes is strictly autobiographical, the underpinnings are absolutely autobiographical. The way that we can feel guilt for things we weren't in control of, the way children do take responsibility. Anna carries this grief into her adulthood, the things that she wasn't able to do to save her siblings, even though she was a little girl. I think that's super, super common for children who grow up without parents who are kind of, quote, in charge, unquote, where the children have to parent their siblings. I'm really kind of deeply grateful to my editor for drawing that material out of me because it definitely grounds her and kind of grounds the book more emotionally. And it feels really true. I mean, that's one thing about knitting in your own stories. There's the truth of the human experience. And to me, I believe that should be in the novels that we write. I think it was George Saunders who said um, to Jonathan Safran Foer, who was asking for literary advice, George Saunders said, just feel more. <laughs> Do that. Feel more. Think right and feel more. Oh, and to me, like that's brilliant advice for writers. Yeah. Tear off the layers. Tell the truth about what it means to be in your body, in the world. Both the thriller and your memoir also really delve into the different forms that parenthood takes. Can you tell us a little first about your biological parents and how your experiences with them, both their presence and their absence, might show up in the pages of your thriller? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you about my biological parents. I don't think they're recognizable necessarily. Well, maybe they are. So my mother, my biological mother was under 25 when she had three children under what under five and she was a waitress and she had only an eighth grade education Mm -hmm. and my father was a drug addict and a vile and a criminal and a violent person in and out of prison abandoning her at various turns and then showing up again being only trouble. And he was in prison at one point and she took a lover and he apparently, and I only heard this as an adult, I didn't know any of this when I was a child, of course, you know, you never really know what's actually happening in the world around you. Just basically, you're just a ping pong ball or a, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He called her from prison and said, I've heard that there's another guy around. If I get out, basically, and he's still around, I'm, I'm going to kill you both. And um, and she left. 
And she took us to my grandmother's house and she said they were going to the movies, she and the boyfriend, and they left and she was gone for 16 years and we never heard a word about where she was or what she was doing. And when my father did get out of prison, he was basically confronted with these three children that he couldn't take care of. And so he was the one who put us into foster care. Mm -hmm. And so in the story, Anna and her siblings have an experience where their mother basically disappears on Christmas Eve, saying she's going to go buy presents and overdoses in a parking lot of a Long John Silver's. And the father figure is basically an avatar for my father, in and out of prison, violent. And what happens to Anna's mother, Robin, is actually what happened to my aunt, who was my mother's best friend, who happened to be married to my father's brother. Does this make any sense? I know this is completely an after-school special. (laughs) Well, it makes sense. And it's also really interesting to see how different elements that you're describing show up in the book. Yeah. So what happened was when I was a child, my aunt went out on the day before Easter, apparently to buy Easter baskets and then overdosed and was found naked on the lawn of a church. Mm-hmm. at dawn on Easter morning. And we came home from church to find several squad cars in the yard of my aunt's house. And we were with my cousins at the time. You know, so yeah, there is a lot of trauma mm-hmm. and violence and in my own childhood. And so that is informing for sure the family situation that Anna is um, confronting and caring. And your question a while back, you know, have I had therapy now? Um, (laughs) A boatload is the real answer. (laughs) A boatload of therapy and different kinds of therapy, right? So not just talk therapy, but trauma therapy, energy work, hands-on, sort of working with healers. And, you know, I went to Bali and was baptized in sacred water. And You know, there's a a variety of different ways that I've tried to engage with my experience. I think it's why I'm so fascinated now. I'm I'm no longer running from it. Mm -hmm. I'm turning toward it and picking it up almost as like something not precious, but deeply intricate and endlessly fascinating. I think it holds all of human experience because we all endure trauma and trauma is ordinary, natural disasters, car accidents, suicides, drug overdoses, right? Yeah. It's ordinary and extraordinary at the same time because it changes our lives in an instant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about your foster parents? I mean, my foster parents, and and we had many different sets, some of which were more damaging than others. But when we were, I was, I suppose, eight, we arrived at our last foster home. We were there for 10 years, and um, they were deeply flawed. She was German and had endured a lot of trauma in World War II. She and her family had to 
Their village was bombed. They had to cross the border to Czechoslovakia on foot. I think she had seven siblings. Her baby brother froze to death in her mother's arms in a potato field. I mean, she had a lot of, you know, like trauma begets trauma, right? And so she was a person who wasn't in touch with the ways that she was still. Her nervous system was still so fraught. She was very explosive and erratic and unpredictable and violent. Um, Hilda, I call her in the book, my last foster father. And there's some aspects of him in Hap, except they're much improved upon. He was very much a dreamer and he would play these games with us. Like we would be walking in the woods and he would say, okay, close your eyes. You're lost. How are you going to make your way back to civilization? Do you look for water? Do you hear the road? Can you find mm -hmm. fishing line? Is there a flat space to build a shelter? You know, he would play these dreaming games with us, which I do think affected my ability to conjure whole stories. There were aspects about him that were wonderful and there were aspects about him that were terrible. I gave Hap some of his more wonderful qualities. How did you decide to include true crime in the book? So that was an accident too, where I think, again, my subconscious maybe had an agenda that I was not aware of. Because as you know, for the last 10 years, as I've been writing these historical novels, I have been weaving quite consciously fact and fiction. Mm. And here I meant to write an entirely fictional character and an entirely fictional story, and yet other things happened. So I set the book in 1993. It was just sort of a fluke that I decided on that year. I wanted it to be before DNA testing, before criminal profiling, before the internet, and before cell phones, because I really wanted it to be a character-driven novel, not procedural in any way. And I was listening to a podcast, and it just happened to be the lead detective on the Polly Kloss case, mm -hmm. being interviewed by another FBI agent. Both of them retired. And again, I was just looking for a voice right? I wasn't looking for salient details. So there I am listening and taking notes, listening to his name is Eddie Fryer. Suddenly he says, October 1st is the night that Polly Kloss was kidnapped from her bedroom in Petaluma. And my imaginary character went missing 10 days earlier, 60 miles mm. away. Oh, you had already picked that exact yes. date. God, yes. you know, it does feel like the universe... I know, exactly. The only explanation for that. The only explanation. And all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I just thought, how could I not include this? Because it's current, it's contemporary, it's happening, it's in the world. It changed the book for the better. And it makes me believe in all kinds of synchronicities, you know, as a novelist and to be open to them and to let those doors open, even though they also come with risk, right? There was risk in including true crime elements in this book. It's definitely now more a hybrid book, but it feels more, much more true to me and also more, it gives the real 
victims of these horrific crimes and their families more dignity and the respect that they've earned by living through these tragedies. Like we can tell stories, sure, as novelists, but it's also true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. None of your novels are set in the present day. <laughs> Why would I ever do that? <laughs> what draws you to writing about the past? I don't know, except hmm. to me, the past is endlessly interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I think maybe it's because as a kid, you know, growing up in libraries, you know, I moved so much, particularly in the four years between four and eight, bouncing between kinship placements and these horribly violent foster care placements, you know, so much confusion and so much displacement and so much loss that I decided at a certain point only to make friends with librarians (laughs) and Mm -hmm. books just disappeared into libraries and into the stacks and into the world of books. And I was, as an early reader, looking for stories that reminded me of my own story, but had a better ending. Mm -hmm. Looking for characters with a lot of resilience and a lot of resources. And I think I was always throwing my lines backward and then throwing my lines forward, trying to project a fantasy beyond my current circumstances, which would make my life more bearable. The present is not interesting to me because the present is usually a dangerous, horrible place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, when you're writing stories that draw from your own life, or even when you were writing your memoir, did you ever hear voices of family members in your head telling you not to share something? Did you ever have it? I don't know. Or, or maybe you're just your own voice censoring you. Oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't include that. Yeah. My sister's voice is really, so I got their permission early on and, you know, it was so long ago and I've moved so many times, you know, and I've changed all the names and my own name has changed twice since I was a child. And I guess you know, I taught for almost 19 years, and I even taught the writing of memoir. The question everyone always has before they tackle their own experience is, do I have permission to do it? Mm -hmm. What will my family think? Shouldn't I wait until so and so dies? And I would always say to them, if you have to ask permission, emotionally, you're never going to write it. And you're never going to tell the truth, because you don't believe yet that this is your story to tell. Mm -hmm. That's the work, is believing that this is your story, no matter how it also aligns with other people's stories. And my sisters have given me their blessing many times, and I'm so grateful to them. So, so grateful. Mm -hmm. And then that book, like Family, although it didn't, it wasn't a bestseller, it didn't, I was on the Today Show. So several million people saw me interviewed. And there was a moment when a picture of me and my two sisters flashed across the screen. And it happened to be seen, if you can believe it or not, by one of my father's, my biological father's ex-wives. Whoa. Oh. And she, can you even believe it? No. She happened to be walking by the TV in her living room and almost fainted. Like, wait a minute, I know those girls. And she reached out to me. 
She's actually a character in like family. We lived for a while in a trailer park with her. Oh, she's lovely. Mm-hmm. She loved us. Yeah. She loved us. Yeah. It was really extraordinary. And then she had two children with my father and, um, she reached out in the most loving, respectful way to me and just said, I just want you to know that I'm here. And if you ever want to connect, I'm here. And if you ever want to know about your father or your siblings, or I'll tell you anything. Mm. I'm so glad it was her who saw you. I know. It would have been worse. I mean, again, though, the synchronicity is, you know, like you can't make this stuff up, right? No. No, of all the people to walk by her TV in that moment, for sure. And what about your sisters? What have their responses been like to the memoir and also to this book, since it has so much that's autobiographical? Yeah, my sisters are my biggest fans and they are incredibly proud of me. And right before this book, when The Stars Go Dark was published, I was profiled by the New York Times and when I did the uh, first interview with Liz Egan, the writer, she called me and my sister happened to be visiting. And I mentioned to Liz Egan that my sister was here. She's like, oh, do you think she would talk to me? Do you think I could get some quotes from her? And my sister was like jumping up and down, not running around the corner, you know, saying, oh my God, no. And so she did talk to Liz and she said the most wonderful thing. Liz said something like, how do you feel about now being exposed again, basically being outed by your sister as a survivor of childhood trauma and sexual abuse. And uh, my sister said, you know, I just told her, sweetie, if you're brave enough, I'm brave enough. Oh, what it chokes me up. I get <laughs> a little too. choked up. Yeah. <laughs> I know it chokes me up. I mean, what an extraordinary thing to say, right? And yet we also know this is true that bravery does inspire bravery and that silence in families can be very insidious. I talk about that in, in when the stars go dark, Anna talks about, you know, yes, violence and, and abuse in families is horrible, but silence in a way can be just as deadly and just as dangerous. And whatever our stories are, if we can feel free enough to tell them to one another, I mean, I'm not saying go on the Today Show and out yourself as a trauma survivor, but if you could tell your sister or your mother or your daughter or your best friend, there's something that is set free and then they also feel free to tell their stories. That's where salvation lies, right? That kind of solidarity, that empathy being heard that way. Yeah, being heard and being seen, and it's counterintuitive, right? Because we think, oh, in order to move on, I need to not confront it. Mm -hmm. But the truer fact is that in order to really move on, we need to say these things out loud to one another. Yeah. It, because it is what connects us. Because we all have these events in our lives that we're running from, that if we turn to face them, we're going to be more whole. That's what healing is. As you say, that's what salvation is. Was there a point in your difficult childhood when you decided that you wanted to be a writer <laughs> when you grew up? Like, tell us the story of how this happened. You're 18, you've finally aged out of the foster system. 
what was the path you took to becoming? So interesting. So I was always writing, even as a really little kid. I remember like at seven and eight writing poems, trying to basically just come to terms with what was happening. And then writing stories. I wrote stories in high school. I remember writing a story and then giving it to my high school teacher, basically wanting to admit that these horrible things had been happening. And he didn't know what to say because he didn't know if I was telling the truth, you know, that I was still hiding behind the story. All he could really do was point out the spelling mistakes. Oh, jeez. When I was trying to come clean about being a trauma survivor. And so what I did was leave him and go throw my story in the trash. Oh, Oh, gosh. That's terrible. I know. But good things did happen when I was 19. I was in the grocery store and I saw that Cosmopolitan magazine published poetry. So I got the issue and I got the address of the poetry editor and I sent a poem to Cosmopolitan magazine and they took it. Wow. No way. Out of the, just out of the sweat pile. Out of the the grocery store. Yeah. Cosmopolitan magazine. I was 19 years old. I had a published poem and they sent me a check, I think for like a hundred dollars or that's and a they, lot for a poem. A lot of in, money. Yeah, and in the 80s, writer. right? Oh my it's just little moments like that. And then when I was 20, I took a creative writing course for the first time. It was a poetry course and got encouragement. What I call the tap, right? Where somebody looks at you and says, by the way, you're a writer. And if you want to do this, it's not going to be easy, but you can do this. Like you have the goods. And that's my favorite thing to actually say to young writers too. Like, guess what? (laughs) You're a writer. It's not going to be easy. So When the Stars Go Dark got such a nice review in the New York Times. Congratulations. And in your newsletter, when you were referring to it, you said, I'm feeling incredibly grateful that the New York Times understood my book so well and really got the message I was trying to convey. And then you quoted this passage from the review. As Anna tries to find out what happened to Cameron and the other girls, her willingness to consider the mystical brings interesting texture to an otherwise grounded detective novel. McLean introduces a psychic and invokes intuition and predestination as valid guiding lights for her characters. Could it be fate that's brought Anna to Mendocino to find Cameron Curtis? I know. I know. (laughs) Okay. So, yes. Intertwined destinies, synchronicity, fate, magical things happening. I mean, this is part of my experience. My experience. I don't know, maybe it's kids who grew up in an after-school special. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Look for signs that what they're suffering in the moment might all be worth it. I read a lot of fantasy as a kid. And I think I just have always loved the idea that maybe we survive what we're surviving in the present to become something larger. And so Anna, for instance, gets told by Tally, the psychic medium character, that her pain, even though it feels almost unendurable sometimes, has led her to her purpose in life. And so how can I not, as 
someone who's come through the war that I've come through, not be astonished, right? To think that maybe everything that happened to me happened to me for a reason so that I could find my life's purpose, which is to tell these stories. Yeah. Well, one last question. You've said, I've written eight books now, and yet in a way, When the Stars Go Dark feels like my debut and that I'm just getting started. In what way does it feel like your debut? So I'm 55, and I've been doing this for a really long time. I never thought that I would get to this point and the whole ceiling would come off. Hmm. And that I feel like I can write anything now. And I don't know why I feel that way, except I just do. I just feel like I could write anything now and that it would be okay. Like that I've learned to trust my instincts, that I've learned to trust the tools that I have. And something about learning so many new things in this book, new ways of confronting the human condition and new ways of telling story, archetypal story just makes me feel, again, like I'm just getting started, but I could write anything. It feels like spring instead of fall. I feel like standing and applauding. It feels like spring instead of fall. I love that she said that. She has overcome so much and she's worked so hard at coming to terms with what she had to deal with. And she's managed to hold on to such love with her sisters and she's accomplished so much. It's all very inspiring. Oh, that was just the most glorious note to end on. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me so powerfully in this episode is how we're always writing from our childhoods, even when we're writing for adults, you know, we're mining our lives and returning to those events and people who shaped us, but at the same time, bringing the perspective and hopefully the growth of the years that have passed. Yeah, I have always loved that quote from William Maxwell. He said that the first 14 years of his life gave him, quote, three quarters of the material I would need for the rest of my writing life. Oh my God. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. True. So yeah. true. Yeah. And his books are so good, by the way, if you haven't read them, check them out. He said that way better than I ever could have. <laughs> I was also struck yet again by the serendipity of writing that her editor suggested adding siblings kind of toward the end of the writing and editing yeah. process. And then that became such a fundamental part of the book. And then the whole Polly class thing that Paula had set the book within days of the actual Polly class kidnapping is just remarkable. And then that became such an important plot element. Yeah, that's always so fascinating the way that things kind of come together and feel like they were always meant to be, even though you hadn't necessarily thought of them in the beginning. Yeah. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Paula at paulamcclain.com, on Instagram at paula underscore mclean, and Facebook at paula mclean author. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. 
You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.